If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 1 this afternoon. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at 21 through 28. So um, this is the biggest chunk of Scripture that, we've, that I've taken on anyways, in, in here anyways, um, as we go through the Gospel of Mark. We're still in chapter 1, but it's a long chapter, so that's to be expected. But chapter 1, verse 21 through 28, let's pray and then we'll read this and then uh, we'll look at this. Father, we thank you for this day once more. We pray now that you would help us, give us illumination, open up your word to us, give us grace, give us insight into Christ, into the beauty and the majesty and the power of Christ as we see him going into the synagogue and doing marvelous wonders here, that you would help us to behold this even 2,000 years later, that you would give us grace to uh, not just behold, not just to be a spectator here, but that we would truly cling to the Christ of the scriptures as we read about Christ and and see him um, unveiled before us. Um, in all his majesty and all his glory. So we help. We ask for help now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read 21 through 28. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Okay, so last week we were talking about Christ. He goes to the four fishermen and he calls them to follow him. And they do follow him. And so now we have in verse 21, if you see the word they, they is in reference to the four disciples who are now following Christ. So now you have Christ and you have four disciples. And the first thing they do, now, what you're going to have actually, so all the way down to verse 39, uh, this whole scene is to demonstrate, to show us what a typical day was like for Christ, a 24-hour period of of Christ's life. It's it's to give us insight into this, a a glimpse or window into what a life... What life would have been like if you were to follow Christ or if um, if you're to even observe Christ in a sense. So here's the thing. Remember when Christ was led into the wilderness right after he was called. So he's baptized. The Holy Spirit comes, anoints him right afterwards. He's led into the Holy Spirit or excuse me, into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to what? To combat the enemy, to, to duel with the devil. What's great here, in a sense, is that the disciples, right? The disciples have just been called out. And now what do they do? They go into the synagogue for the sake of dueling or com- or having combat with the devil. Okay? And so this is very intentional. And, and so... Um, The other thing to keep in mind here is that unlike John the Baptist, you know, John the Baptist, everyone was flocking to Christ. I mentioned this a little last week. Everyone's coming to where Christ, or excuse me, John the Baptist is out there. Everyone's going to where John the Baptist is. With Christ, it's the opposite. Christ goes and seeks the people. Christ goes to where the people are. And in a sense, that's kind of the old old covenant, Old Testament type of mentality versus uh, the new covenant mentality, where Christ is going to send his disciples out into all the world, whereas in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, if you wanted to be part of Israel, you had to go where Israel was. You had to go to Jerusalem. You had to go, you had to go there. 
So in a sense, you see this inversion already. So Christ is about the Lord's business. Remember, he tells the disciples, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. And here is the first step, right? We're going into the synagogue and I'm going to look what he does when he gets there. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Okay, so when you think of Christ, a lot of times um, there's a very imbalanced or unbalanced perspective or understanding of who Christ is, I, I would say, in general, in the Christian circles, perhaps, some Christian circles, you know, we sometimes or some people sometimes think of Christ as like, okay, what is the chief objective of Christ? Now, we know it's to die. He goes to the cross. He comes to earth to die for our sins. But when he's here, what is the main thing that he does? And we're like, man, he does miracles, right? That's the main thing that he does. He does miracles and he does do miracles, right? What's the main, the main thing that he does is teach, or preach. Remember last time we saw last week, he says um, he comes around and he's fishing, uh, excuse me, he's preaching the gospel while they're fishing. And then look at verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Go up to Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. Eventually, Jesus sends his disciples out to preach. And then here you have it saying that Jesus began to teach. And this word teach is actually mentioned 35 times in the gospel of Mark. 34 of those times are written about Jesus. So the emphasis in the Gospel of Mark is that Christ is a teacher. Now, I'm not diminishing the fact that he's God, right? I'm not, you know, because a lot of times they're like, I think Thomas Jefferson, some of these other guys are like, hey, he was a good teacher, but he wasn't God, right? Well, then he's a teacher who lies because he made himself out to be God. And that's not a good teacher if he's lying. So Christ, when he comes, right, he comes as a teacher. That's his primary purpose. And when you see these miracles, as we will in a minute, these miracles are usually done as a response to some pressing need that somebody has while he's in the middle of teaching. Okay, so these are secondary in a sense. And we'll talk about the theology of miracles in a minute. Uh, But he's in a synagogue. Now, a synagogue was a religious assembly. It's not the temple. So you have one temple, but then you have a lot of synagogues. And a synagogue, um, it... You know, different places had different types of buildings, assembly halls. They had, um, you know, it didn't have to be like in this this church-type structure necessarily. All you needed was 10 adult male Jews, and you would be considered a synagogue if you were there for the purpose of opening the Word and, and teaching and things like that, okay? Um, and so a lot of, a lot of the, the, the New Testament church, as far as just how things got started and organized, is in a sense after that model in, in some ways, okay? So that's the synagogue, um, and this is where Christ is going. Notice He goes there on the Sabbath day. Now that's, that's very, um, very common. I like this because Christ is not... We're going to see Christ speak about the Sabbath day quite a bit. And we're going to have a whole sermon and series on the Sabbath, okay? Um, And so I'm going to save that for then. But the point here to note is that a lot of times when we think of the Sabbath, and for Christians now it's the Lord's Day, it's the Christian Sabbath, which is Sunday, the first day of the week. But a lot of times we think, well, you know, Christ came and He abolished the Sabbath. He abolished that whole thing. And we'll see that that's not the case. But we also see that that's not the case here, right? Because on on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day, for us it's the Lord's day, on the Sabbath day, he's still going to the synagogue. He's not avoiding it. He's not trying to get out of it, right? He's going right there. And what happens when he gets there? He begins to teach, and then they're amazed at his teaching. Um, And what is so amazing about his teaching here? He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Um, 
Remember what Christ came teaching. He came teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's now. It's begun. In a sense, the, the, there's, there's different types of interpretation as far as, okay, what are they so amazed at? Number one, though, is that there's no doubt that he was, he was preaching that what everyone else had been preaching about or teaching in the Old Covenant has now been fulfilled. It's here, it's on the ground, we're seeing it, it's in your midst. Christ is, behold, the kingdom of God is now. Why? Because Christ has taken on flesh, and when He comes, He's going to, he's going to do work, He's going to destroy. He's going to overcome the powers of evil. We're about to see that demonstrated here. So when he comes, um, they're you know they're amazed at at, at this this uh, this teaching that he has, this power that he has. The word there is actually power. So in verse twenty two, where it says they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority. The word there is the same word as power. He was teaching with power. Okay, so in a sense, it's not necessarily just the content of what he's preaching. Although I think there is an aspect of that because remember on the Sermon on the Mount, after he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where he's talking about, you know, he's like, you've heard it said that, you know, if you commit adultery, then this, this, this. Well, I say unto you, if you if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, then that is the same thing as adultery. And they're like, man, what? Right? And so in a sense, he's, he's correcting what has always been taught, but which had been corrupted over time in this pharisaical context. And so they look at that, and at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he's saying things like this, and he's saying the same thing about... Um, about anger, you know, if you if your anger if your anger with somebody is similar to, to, to hating them, and and they're like, man, this is this is we've never heard this stuff before. And at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the exact same thing. They were amazed because he was not teaching as one of the scribes; he was teaching as someone who comes with authority, with power. And of course, we know who he is, so that helps too, right? He comes as the Son of God, God the Son, and he comes preaching. Um, so the next part is this, though. So they're here, they're listening. Okay, that's one thing. That's the first section here. But the next section, in response, or you could even say in the middle of, because it doesn't really tell us, right? Um, look at verse 23. Just then, as he's here teaching, and they're all amazed, they're thinking, man, we've never heard this stuff. This is, this is, this is new. This is wild, right? What is going on here? Right when they are thinking this, Just then, verse 23, just then, so I would argue that this is in the middle of his teaching. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Okay, Now an unclean spirit, you can look at this, um, an unclean spirit is an evil spirit. A lot of times it's the same same word that you would use for somebody who's demon possessed. That's clearly what's going on here. So this demon has taken over this man. He is, he is basically living in this man in a sense and using this man. And I know it's kind of trippy for us. You know, we think of this and we're like, man, has anyone ever seen anyone demon-possessed? And you have two camps. You, you have the camp that's like every person that you see that ever says anything weird about God, you're like, he's demon-possessed, you know? That's the first camp. But then you have another camp that's saying nobody's ever demon-possessed. That can't happen anymore. That's not real for us, etc. And I would say both of those excesses are very wrong. This is a very real thing. And I I personally think I have encountered people who are demon-possessed, for sure. Um, But at the same time, it's not to say that every time somebody has some kind of mental disorder or something like that, that he's demon-possessed. Not at all. This is a very specific situation, and it's usually not that common, at least here. And what's going on here is that when this is happening... Notice what's going on. He comes and what's the first thing he do? He does. He cries out in the middle of Christ's teaching. 
So think about how disruptive that would be. You have Christ, He's teaching, and everybody's amazed at His teaching, and in the middle of this, you have this demon crying out, almost compulsively. It's like he can't even help himself. And he cries out, and what does he say when he cries out? He's, by the way, what he's doing here is he's trying to take control of the situation. He's trying to stop this. And you can tell this because when he uses, look what he says here. He says, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? In other words, he's saying, hey, don't come and mess with me. Like, what, what, what are you doing in my territory? What are you doing? This is, this is my space, right? He's the demon. He's threatened. He's, he's hostile. He's defensive. He's saying, what's the deal, Right? I mean, what are you doing? This is, this is my territory. Now, it's interesting, right? Because you think of the synagogue and, um, you know, and even churches. I mean, there's something here to say that churches, when people say, uh, you know, uh, when you're out evangelizing or something, and they, they'll always say, well, you know, I go to church. And you're like, well, the devil goes to church. The devil's always in every single church, especially every faithful true church, and especially in those that aren't faithful, right? Because especially there. But you have, it's not like demons are somehow, it's not like this is a sacred space physically that somehow keeps the demons out. We don't have that, right? Now, as, the, as people who have the, the, the Holy Spirit in us, that's different. We as the temple of God, that's different. But when you're talking about the space, the physical location of a place, that is not off limits per se. Okay, there's no sacred space in a sense, right? So what's happening here is when they come here, they're threatened, they're hostile, they're defensive. And look what he says here, this demon, he says this. He says, uh, have you come to destroy, not me. He says, if you come to destroy us. He's speaking. See, this is, this, the demon, by the way, is not the same thing. So Satan has demons under him. Okay, so you have a lot of demons. Here's the thing, though. He is, in a sense, more aware of who Christ is and of what Christ came to do at this point than even the disciples themselves are. This is a supernatural insight, man. This is evil, right? But this evil, the supernatural insight that he has is aware of the fact that Christ has come to destroy not just me as a single demon, but the entirety of the demonic realm. He's come. Remember what it says in 1 John, that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He's on a mission. We saw that when he was tempted in the garden. That's one of the purposes of his coming. And so what happens, he says, if you come to destroy us, and then he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, you know, in those, I was, I was doing some reading about uh, exorcism and things, in, especially in the, in the context of where Christ was and of that time period. And... Um, you know, a lot of times what would happen is there was, this, there was this mindset, this idea that the way to control somebody was to use their correct name. To name them. To, to, in other words, you don't see, um, as you go through the Gospel of Mark, you'll have people coming to Mark who are, or coming to Christ who are sick, who are diseased, but they will never call him, they'll call him like Son of David. They'll call him, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. They'll call them these different names. But I don't think there's a single instance where anyone other than the demons actually call him by these names. Now we know it's not to say like, oh, well, maybe that wasn't really who he is because God the Father has already called Christ that, right? Back here whenever he's baptized, the Father calls Christ his son. Um, 
Look at verse 11. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. And then we see the other, uh, eventually we'll see uh, Peter confess the same thing, right? But it is to say that most of the time you don't see this. But the devil here, what he's trying to do is he's attempting to control Jesus because if you use the precise name of an individual, um, that would secure mastery over that individual. So what happens? He's trying to do that. But he can't do that. This is Christ. He's trying to... He's trying to, again, he's trying to get the situation where he can control it, where he can have dominion over it. And remember, when he says, I know who you are, is that true or not? Do the demons know who Christ is? Remember what it says in James? The demons believe God and they tremble. They're afraid, man. You see this right here, right? There's a sense, there's an element of fear here. Like, Jesus, what are you doing here? And so the demons believe and they tremble. So don't ever think, right? The demons, like we saw when Christ was in the wilderness, the demons know Scripture. So we have to be on our guard. But the thing is, is here is Christ. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this atmosphere, you have this person who's shrieking, who's crying out. um, And he's saying, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes him. See there? He says, in other words, be quiet. Um, Come out. Um, the word for rebuke means to shut or to muzzle. Paul uses that word when you don't muzzle the ox. That's all he's doing here, right? So he's just he's muzzling this demon. And what happens? That's exactly... So he tells the demon a certain thing, and that's exactly what happens. What's great about this whole thing is that when he says this, the man is thrown into convulsions, verse 26, throwing him into convulsions. The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice. It's a death well. Why? Because he's being vanquished. He's being destroyed. And he knows it. So this is in a sense, think about it, this is the first picture that we have of Christ in action. And what is he doing? He's teaching, and in the midst of his teaching, the demons are trying to interrupt his teaching, and then he turns around and he performs this miracle, this exorcism on this man, ultimately to keep him quiet, but also look at the response of the people here. They, are, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. Here's the thing, okay? We need to stop here because we're going to see a lot of miracles being done by Christ in the New Testament, in, in the Gospel of Mark. We see that all the time. You see a lot of miracles. And it's, un, it's foreign for us, especially in the West, you know? Um, whether or not that's happening in China, Asia, some of these other places, um, India, I, you know, some people... I don't know. I've heard a lot of testimonies, right? And you're like, wow, we don't see these things a lot here in the West. Why? I don't know. I really know. I don't know. However, we know, and there's no doubt about this, that the physical realm is intertwined with the spiritual realm. We were talking about that a little in Sunday school. There is an intertwining of the physical and the spiritual dimensions. You can't really separate the two. I know we try to do that, but you can't really separate it. Um, And the thing about this is, number one, miracles. Let me give you four points about miracles. As we go through this, they're going to be helpful because there's a lot to consider here. But let's do four points here. Number one, miracles do not create faith, but it does bring people to Him. So just because you see a miracle doesn't mean you're like, oh, I believe now. In some cases, that might be the case, right? But in most cases, it's not. So just because they see this happening and they're amazed does not mean that they're necessarily believers. Okay? Number two, it does strengthen the faith of believers. So a believer sees this and their faith is strengthened. 
They are praising God for this. They are glorifying God. When when Christ does a miracle, when Peter or Paul later, they do miracles, people rejoice. They're giving praise to God. So for for believers, it does strengthen their faith. Um, But here's the thing. Miracles can also lead people to oppose or even question Jesus. Sometimes Jesus does miracles and they turn around and say, you know what, the only way you're able to do these miracles is because you're possessed by a demon. Think of that. So sometimes it can actually turn out the other way and it goes back to your presupposition. You know, are you, are you, are you at war with Christ? Because if so, you'll make up some excuse for why he's able to do it. You know, it's amazing the unbelievers when they come up and they're like, you know what, if God was to do some kind of miracle right in front of me, then I would believe. I'd believe then. Right? And you're thinking, you know, you live on this earth that's floating in the middle of space right now. And you can, you know, we're able to talk and sunlight and all this stuff. Like, you know, we were once in someone's belly. (laughs) Like, what miracle are you looking for? Look what it says in Luke chapter 16, though. That same question. Remember the rich man who is cast into hell, and he's amazed. He's like, oh, man, I, I, I'm, this place is real. Now I'm amazed. because you know. And then he says this. He's talking to Abraham. This is a parable, but he says this in verse uh, 27. He says this from the pit of hell. He says, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, talking about Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. In other words, he's like, I got brothers. I, I know this place is real now. Can you please send somebody to tell these guys that this is a real place and don't mess up like I have? And look what he says. Look at what Abraham says in verse 29. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You know what he's saying? They have the word of God. They have the word of God. Let them hear the word of God. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, if someone's raised, if a miracle takes place, then they'll repent. But what does Abraham say? But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be persuaded even if somebody, someone rises from the dead. Just because you see the resurrected Jesus Christ standing before you in Matthew 28, it still says, and some doubted. You need more than a miracle in order to follow Christ. In a sense. Now we know the new birth is a miracle. But you need more of a some kind of tangible, you know thing that Christ does in front of you or somebody else in order to believe. You need something more because if you're not born again, you will make up some excuse for why what you just saw is not actually a miracle. That's how it's always been. So um, it does lead people to question or oppose Jesus. And also, as I mentioned, these are not the miracles are not the main thrust of his ministry. They always happen or usually happen whenever a pressing need comes to attention, his attention, and then he does the miracle in response to that. Okay, so as we're going as we're going through Mark, just and you'll see this as we're going through it, because there's a lot of miracles that take place. But it's not like he, he doesn't say, "Hey, let's go to Galilee or let's go to Capernaum to do miracles." He says, "No, let's go there to preach. Let's go to teach." And in the process, things are happening, and he does miracles. Okay, um, so again, verse twenty-seven, they're amazed, right? But it's not necessarily out of faith. And this word. This word suggests, in the Greek, it suggests a type of panic or fear. Remember when Christ heals the demoniac. 
And the demons go and they invade all these pigs. And the pigs go and they rush down the side of the hill. And they, everyone who sees it, they go and they tell everybody about it. And everybody comes back and you're thinking everybody's about to fall on their face and worship Christ for doing this. But what do they do? They say, no, leave. Get out of here. This is too much. Why? Because this is a disruption of the normal pattern of things. It's uncomfortable. So that's what this word implies here. They're amazed, but it's not like they're like, oh, this must be Christ. This must. Now, sometimes that happens. But this is not necessarily one of those things. Um, and here's the thing. So they're amazed. Now, what is neat, though, is that they are amazed by his teaching first. Because why? Because this, in a physical realm, he has, he has some kind of authority or power over the physical realm when he teaches. But now they're amazed because now you're seeing he has power over the supernatural realm, the immaterial realm as well. And now you're starting to think, man, all right, because it's one thing to have somebody who is a good preacher, a good teacher, and you're like, yeah, there's, you know, we, we hear, to, you know, like sometimes you hear a good sermon, and you're like, man, that's powerful or something, right? And I'm not saying they're even on the same category because Christ spoke like no man ever spoke, but it's to say that, yeah, that's one, that's one thing. But then you have this other element. Remember when Christ is windy and he's asleep on the boat and the Disciples are terrified, and there's a storm, and they're like, Jesus, don't, don't you even care? You know, and he wakes up, and he tells the, the, the storm, hush, be still. And everything goes calm. And then they're spooked. They're, they're freaking out. Because now they're like, okay, who is this? Because this is not a man. <laughs> there's something else going on here. So that's what's going on here. So they're seeing this, and they're trying to figure out what is happening. And you can see this because of what they say. Look, so that they debated among themselves. Right? They're, they're actually discussing it. They're trying to figure this out. A, a debate begins. They're not, they are not quite sure what's going on. The disciples are not quite sure what's going on. And we'll see that later on. But imagine, remember, the disciples are there with them. And you don't see John the Baptist doing any miracles. So this is not like this is happening all the time in their lives, right? This is some, some, some stuff they've never seen before. And they're trying to figure out, everybody's trying to figure out, what is this? That's actually what they say literally. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Of course, right? Now, verse 28, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And here we go. And now you're going to have Christ, who remember he starts out, um, he starts out unknown. Nobody knows. John the Baptist arguably knows, but nobody knows. He comes. He's baptized by John the Baptist. He goes into the wilderness, so he's still obscure. He's unknown. He goes and he gets the fishermen. He's got disciples now. He's still unknown. He's still obscure. And now he's going to start invading these territories, encountering these things, teaching these things, and now news is going to spread. And that's why the rest of his life, I mean, he will be nonstop on the go, the disciples as well. Um, I want to I share something that's called uh, typology. Okay, so, so it, what I'm, I want to show... That Christ is the greater David here. Okay? Christ is the greater David. And what I mean by that, typology means that you have something in the Old Testament that foreshadows or points to or gives a picture of in some way something, especially usually of Christ in the New Testament or something later on. So you have David who is a type of Christ, in other words. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
So Christ, remember, is the one, and, and, and Eric mentioned this when he was preaching on uh, Psalm 51, but Christ is the one who sits on the throne of David. He is the king. Now, what you have here, remember David, okay? So David, similarly, started out in an obscure, obscure way. He's a shepherd. He's out with the sheep. Nobody knows who he is. He's out doing his thing. Nobody knows anything, right? I mean, it's like, who's this guy again, right? Here's the thing. Saul, on the other hand, Saul is the king. Saul, at first, just like the synagogue, Saul, work with me, right? Saul has a good spirit when he begins. God dwells in him. Not to say salvifically, but God dwells in him, at least in the Holy Spirit sense of the word, to use him as a king. Okay? The synagogue, in the same way, was a place where God's spirit was in a serious, truly way, in a true way. Then what happens is, is when they disobey, what happens? When Saul disobeys, he's possessed by an evil spirit. When the synagogues begin to be corrupted, they become possessed by an evil spirit. And so what happens? Check this out. So 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Think about Christ in the wilderness, Christ being baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him in a mighty way. Just like it comes upon David, notice this is an obscure situation. He's not like being crowned in front of everybody. The coronation is in the middle of nowhere, right? Nobody knows about it. The brothers are there, uh, but nobody else. So verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Okay, so now you have you have Christ, like David, filled with the Holy Spirit. You have the synagogue, like King Saul, that started good, but that became demon-possessed. Now, look what happens next. Go down to verse 22. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Now, this is what's called typology, right? This is a this is Christ is the 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 greater David here. So this gives us a picture or insight into what Christ is later on going to do. Okay? Here Christ comes, and Christ comes into this place, and he starts casting out demons. What David here is, is performing an exorcism. And that, what, that's what the greater David, that's what Christ is going to do when he comes to earth. Okay? So it's not like this thing's new, in other words, as far as Christ coming. and it's, it's, it's not, this, this is not being done in a vacuum. Miracles had been done before. But again, when you think of miracles, think about it in this context. Miracles are also performed and also done by demon workers, black magic workers, you know, all kinds of stuff. So it's not to say that just because you do a miracle, in fact, what does Christ say? He says, there will be many who come to me on that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did I not do miracles in your name, cast out demons in your name, etc. And Christ will say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Right? But it is to say that one of the purposes of Christ's function here when He starts casting out demons is to demonstrate that He is now the King of the universe and Satan is not. And that is still the same principle today. So that's why when the gospel goes into an area, the demons flush out. When the, when the gospel leaves an area, the demons come back and now you have more of the satanic and demon stuff. And again, look, you know, you can... It, People can get way too crazy with this stuff, I agree. But at the same time, I think that we are typically on the other side. And I'm saying in the West, in the non-charismatic Western churches, we usually look at it and we're like, nah, man, that can't, you know. I mean, this is real. This really is real stuff. And especially in light of, um, I've said it maybe a thousand times, but in church plans, right? In church plans, new converts, um, even when everything's going well in your life, especially, right? When everything, when you feel very close to the Lord spiritually, everything's going, you know, you're reading the Word, you're doing everything you should. What's the devil going to do? Satan's going to come after you, right? That's, that's what's going on here. Because if Satan tried to come after Christ when Christ is in the synagogue teaching, why? To disrupt the things of Christ. Christ, when He leaves earth, He says, I'm going to send someone to you to help you, the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So that now we are ambassadors, representatives of Jesus Christ in everything we're doing. So guess who Satan is after? Guess who the demons are after? Us. Now, can the demons possess a Christian? No. Could the demons possess Christ? No. But can they torment? Can they mess with us? Can they pester us? Yes, absolutely. Can they make wreak havoc? Yes, in certain ways. But always, just like we saw in the, the, the passages when Christ was doing warfare with Satan in the, in, the, in the wilderness, always only under the sovereignty of God. Nothing can happen to you outside of the sovereignty of God. And as Christians, as believers, if Satan does come and harass you and torment you and pester you and everything else, we know that it's meant to be used for our good. Our loving Father is not outside of this picture. He's, he is decreeing things so that he can teach us things so that He can conform us to Christ's image. And so it's never, it's never without a purpose, in other words. And it cannot, this possession thing cannot happen to believers. Right? So you don't need to be terrified, oh, am I demon-possessed? Am I... No, not if you're in Christ. Here's the thing. We are servants of the King. Who is King today? Not the demons. That's the whole purpose of Christ coming to earth. To establish His kingdom. And His kingdom is advancing and has been advancing and will continue to advance wherever His people are. In Clovis, New Mexico. And as we go forth and we're in our work environments with our families, at the grocery stores, all these places, as we go forth as heralds of of the gospel, as, as people who have Christ in them, guess what's happening? The demons are going to flush out, but at times they'll still come and challenge. They'll come and, 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 and resist. They'll come and be defensive. We all know that, right? I mean, think about when you go to somebody with the gospel and they get very defensive. They're very upset. They're very mad. You know, it could be about their sin, and that's maybe everybody, right? At first, you have that defensive. But the thing is, is that Christ is going to drive those demons out. He is. Wherever His gospel goes. That's the beauty of this church plan. 
when we establish by God's grace and His power, this is His church plan, but when this happens, what is happening is we are staking a claim in the ground for Christ, and we're saying this territory is His, this town is His. The people here, we believe, are going to come to Him. Why? Because He's King. He's the Lord. And that is, you know, when they used to call Christ king, that was always a reference. That was a reference to what you would call Caesar. We're saying, no, Caesar's not king. You know, the politicians aren't king. The governor's not king. Who, you know, nobody, no king but Christ. And this king is driving out demons. That's his purpose. And we'll see that as we go forward. So rejoice if you're in Christ and, and know that as you are encountering these demons and this, this, uh, this realm that is still actively trying to wage war against Christ's people, that you have the victory already. We already have the victory in Christ. So stand firm, fight, you know, do everything we can, use the means of grace to stand firm against Satan. And, and remember that this is a, we're part of the church militant on earth, right? We're not part of the church triumphant yet because we're not in heaven yet. We have a a battle to fight here. So let's do it, right? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for for this Christ that we serve. Thank you that Christ is still, he's still causing havoc to the enemy. Lord, thank you that we know that nothing that happens to us is done outside of your will and that you are a good God who loves your children and that all these things, even the, the, the worst things on earth, that they, they are always used for good for those who love you. So we thank you for that ultimately. We thank you that this is a temporary place on earth for us, at least in this body. We thank you that, that we know that the demons are, are being placed under Christ's feet today. That there are areas that are shrinking, areas of darkness that are being subdued today. And we thank you that this is happening even through this church that you planted here. That the demons in this town are being supplanted and subdued and and overthrown. But Lord, help us to be on our guard as we go forth in the midst of this warfare. Lord, we know it's real and yet a a part of us, Lord, we we get numb at times or, or perhaps senseless and we forget that this is real. So Lord, give us grace. Give us help, Father. You know our weaknesses. You know where we're prone to to fall short. So we pray that you would protect us, give us grace against the enemy, but we praise you, Lord. Thank you that that Christ came to to destroy the works of the devil. And we see that in our own lives, people who used to be enslaved to to the devil, that you've taken us, you've redeemed us. And that now we're slaves of Christ. We praise you for this, Lord, and that, that it would be so for this whole this whole town and Portalis and Sudan and Fort Sumner and Tucumcari and all across this land, Lord, all across this world, that people would be claimed for Christ. And we thank you that that by your power, by your gospel, it's 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 happening and 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 it will continue to happen. So give us grace, give us courage, Lord, give us help. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's stand.